Dominic Aldington. Just because we have a patient who takes opiates that were originally prescribed does not make them drug addicts. And to treat them as such is disgusting, I believe. Pain is some serious business. It ain't everyone who knows what to do about it. Now I hear there's a podcast just about this. It doesn't talk of pain alone, but other interesting things distracting the mind from it. So I suggest you tune in to Outsmart the Pain and listen to what Karsten has to say about it. Get ahead. Get it done. Listen to the podcast and maybe change your life or someone else's. Today I have the great opportunity to talk to uh, Dominic Aldington from Great Britain. Uh, where in Great Britain? Well, first of all, Carson, thank you very much. I'm currently sitting in my office at home, but that's not what you asked. I'm in a house in a little city called Winchester, which once upon a time was the capital city of these islands. Many, so now you're months. you're kind of uh, angry that that's not the times. Maybe the property would be too expensive, uh, even more expensive if it was a capital city. So we'll leave it as it is. And and we've actually met quite a few years ago. My knowledge about you is that you are an excellent pain doctor, really. And not only with uh, patients, but you do present your own work in the UK, as well as scientific presentations, which are really, really good. So I know that you are really knowledgeable in this field, to be honest. So, well, that's very kind of you. As an Englishman, I'm going to have to balk slightly at being told I'm good at anything. But, you know, I, I, I do what I do. That's good. Just to tell the listener, what do you do? What do you do in, in the UK? I was originally a consultant anesthetist or anesthesiologist, depending on your vocabulary. And I was also in the army. And after not very long, I discovered I found that the pain was a bit more rewarding for me to try to manage than just the anesthesia because there was a requirement for people who knew a bit about pain to do more work on pain within the military. I stopped doing the anesthetics and focused on pain. We, we were getting quite a few casualties coming back to the UK from foreign climbs. There was a requirement, someone to organize the pain management component of what we were doing, of our chain of care. I stopped anesthetizing a bit over a decade ago, I think about 12 years ago, I think. Mm. And uh, it's focused on pain. Then I left the military about six or seven years ago. And now I work in a normal civilian pain clinic and see the normal bits and bobs one would expect to see normal conditions but I also still do some work with veterans now and help them with their pain management requirements. Hmm. I actually had a talk with an operational psychologist Niklas Visen for the interested listener. He has also been in the armed forces in Sweden, been stationed in uh, Sarajevo and in uh, Mali and uh, he also started a career in the armed forces so tell me why the armed forces what's so interesting with that it drew you as well um yes when i was a little one a little chap 
even before I did medicine, I was in the reserves in, in Britain and was training in West Germany. And so the, the military bit was never very far. And I wanted to do something um, different, really. And I thought military medicine would be different to what we were all being trained for within the normal health service. And I quite like camaraderie and I, it also slightly helping a small group of people, which is kind of why we all do pain as well, isn't it? I think there are echoes of pain in there. We're sort of helping a group that often aren't helped. So mm. there, there are all sorts of little reasons um, for it. And And pain within the military, is it just the same pain as everyone has as a patient, but it's in the military? Or is it a different kind of pain that you need to treat or understand there? It's a really good question. I think it underwent a, a step change, as indeed I think all, all the armed forces did with many of their thoughts. Because, of course, when we started our careers in the early 1980s, there was going to be a short um, little punch-up in the middle of Germany that would end with some mushroom clouds and a big flash, and we'd all be dead. So, really, the management of pain and casualties was never really dealt with. But then the the conflicts changed and within Britain, our army certainly were involved in Northern Ireland for a while, but there was lots of good healthcare opportunities nearby if necessary. Whereas when you ended up in a desert or somewhere, then you had to use what you take and it's the chain of evacuation. People might get wounded 4,000 miles from home and so it's how to get them back. So it's not just the battlefield analgesia, but the whole plan that needed to be looked at. So that was all relatively modern. So to answer your question, it's the same but different. What? It's the same but different. So in many ways, I, I do believe that pain is pain is pain. Mm. And we shouldn't get too hooked on the mechanism because actually it's a human experience. Mm. The mechanism has an importance, but only when we're starting to think of our general management, but not sort of specific. We get nociception and pain confused. Even when talking to colleagues, they refer to pain pathways when they mean nociceptive pathways, because, of course, none of us really understands what happens when it hits that bit between the ears. Um, so I, I could keep going forever. You might need to tell me to calm down or I'll lose myself. But, could, but, Dominic, but, but, could you please calm yeah. down now? Uh, <laughs> I need yeah. to ask you a question. Right. No, uh, but this might be a little bit uh, too um, technical for the listener, but I really need to ask you this. There has been, at, at least in, in Sweden, and I know in some um, pain groups, uh, been a talk about the nociplastic pain. I have never used that since no one actually knows what persistent pain is. You don't need to get another word uh, into the whole vocabulary. But that's for the intellectuals to talk about how to define nociplastic pain. I might be alone thinking so. And now I, I dare to, to ask you, what, what do you think about the term nociplastic pain? Because you just said nociceptive pain. Uh, and now we have something called nociplastic pain. Do you have any ideas yeah, about no, that? No, you're absolutely right. I've got all sorts of terrible thoughts. Um, I think we confuse all sorts of issues. The whole business about diagnosing pain or cause of pain, I, I can understand why people are encouraged to do it, um, because you can bill. 
and, and get paid for it. And uh, that's important for some people. And there's a whole, you know, business there. I think it also makes what we do sound more real, more plausible. We can stand on our hind legs when we're chatting to colleagues and professionals. That's good. Without a doubt, help research. If you can say, now, this is what we mean by neuropathic pain. You've got your criteria in that set. And that's it. But let's be honest, because I know you, you like me, we're, we're fundamentally clinicians. We, we do the bit with the person. And all these things we've discussed so far, so whether it's neuroplastic or, sorry, neuropathic or, or um, nociceptive, they're only theories. They're not facts. These are all theories. These are all ways we try and make the patterns fit together. We've only got a handful of things we can offer people anyway. So at one level, I think we're all dancing on pinheads if we get too excited by these things. Mm. And when the investigations and things like that are caught up with the theories, then then maybe we can change them and say, no, look, it is true. It's look, we know. But all of these concepts are just good theories at the moment, but mm. they are theories. Mm. Uh, and talking about theories, are, are there any new theories in, in the pain research area that you are excited about? Something that you think is coming? I'm sorry, I'm a bit dull, aren't I? But absolutely not. There are new theories all of the time, aren't there? Hmm. And again, how much of a difference does it make in the clinic is a bit debatable, I think. It, it is quite interesting. I suspect we might end up talking about the opioid issue. Oh, we <laughs> might crisis. do that, yes. Mm -hmm. There are many aspects to that together quite in quite an interesting fashion. Yeah. But just to finish a bit about the military, because I do think they can be misunderstood slightly. I think the pains are generally same, but with some extremes. So we don't tend to have many older people in the military. Um, so some people will get um, MS and pain associated with, a few people might get a bit of arthritis and things like that. But not particularly commonly, um, but of course, musculoskeletal pains uh, or injuries are very common. The emotional component is often significantly more because if you can't get up, carry your kit and run quickly enough, you will lose your job. And, and it's not just a job, it's a way of life, it's a reward system, it's a housing system, it's a educate everything will be lost and so the emotional component to musculoskeletal injuries can often be very significantly more than mm. in a comparative civilian population uh, uh, yeah not to leave the military quite yet what do you do with the veterans so this is a group who have got in touch usually with a third sector organization charity and have said look i've got problems with my persistent pain Unlike the American system, we don't have a very formal veteran healthcare organization, but that's because we have a national health service, which everyone's entitled to use. But some of the veterans, for whatever reason, like to have a chat to another veteran. And we've developed a, we call it our pain resilience program. And it's an online um, 
program, we put them into cohorts of about seven or eight individuals. And the idea actually is that they become a self-supporting group. And we give them some factual information and a bit of knowledge at the beginning. And then we support them as they um, develop into a group that will, going forward, look after one another. Um, and so far, it seems we've been doing that for a couple of years almost, and uh, it seems to be going quite quite well. And then we've also just starting up a service for veterans who want help reducing their opioid use. Hmm. And again, many of them feel that it's a safe space we're offering. Um, they, they can be understood and chatting one veteran to another, I think often helps um, with this complex and vulnerable population. I've heard some people say that the worst thing you can do at a party is to invite two guys from the armed forces because they will just sit and talk about their memories and everyone else is trying to exchange recipes and, and <laughs> talk about movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, brilliant. Well, uh, we always think the worst thing you could do at a party is invite a civilian because they're just not very interested. <laughs> yeah, that's also splendid. I must tell you, it's a prescription time on, on this one, but I, as an anesthetist, I had one of the highest ranking uh, military officers in Sweden at the post-op uh, surgery. He was lying there in his bed and when everything was finished and, uh, and he got out of the ward, the two men beside him looked at each other and said, now that was a real man and they were like stunned how how stoic he was how he took the pain how very uh, direct he was with his questions that kind of left yeah. a memory in me as well not only bad things about the military <laughs> from a neutral no. country's stand uh, point no. of view mm. so we we might uh, get into this opioid business quite uh, early in this talk then because we kind of touched it any general thoughts about the so-called opioid crisis. We know there is an opioid crisis in the US. I think that in Sweden we say that there is no such crisis and we don't see it coming when we look at prescriptions and things like that. In Europe or in the UK, I don't really know. What do you think about that? Do you have any general thoughts about that? We don't have the situation that I think they've got in North America. I think the academics will have an amazing time picking through this in 15, 20 years time when the excitement's died down a bit. And then when we're thinking about the same problems with marijuana. It, it's a circle, it, it goes around, comes around, goes around. Hmm. If we dig into this opioid crisis, what are the issues? There, there's the patient expectations of being pain-free. I think there are issues about clinicians' ignorance about what pain is and how it can be managed and things. But I think there are also other drivers a lot of the opioid deaths are actually illicit use of opioids and not just prescription opioids. That's true. And I think there's a huge blurring in there of who's supplying what, when and why and where it's coming from. If, if we do look just at the opioids, and I know that there are a lot of opioids prescribed in North America, or there have been, but my understanding is many, many if not most of those prescriptions came from orthopedic surgeons. Well, I don't know what yours are like, but not many of ours over here are going to bother prescribing that sort of thing. Now we're 
closing in on another subject uh, called orthopedic surgeons. I, I had an orthopedic surgeon in um, uh, one of my episodes as well and uh, kind of joked about uh, I need to fix this fracture. It's the thinking behind the fixing of the fractures. He's a good chap, uh, Tobias Verena. I don't know if you call that in English that you throw in a, a torch, but I have to uh, ask you something. In Sweden, I think that uh, a lot of general practitioners really don't want to prescribe opioids. And I know that some very good pain researchers and uh, clinicians have said that when you're into opioids, it should be prescribed by a pain specialist uh, and not by the GP. And I have uh, had myself a, a patient, this is just one, I know, one patient that had been on opioids for many years, let's say 10 years, uh, family worked, everything worked fine. And then he changed GP to someone who said that you should never have opioids, I will not prescribe this. So they stopped on the opioids and he still had his pain and he went to an orthopedic surgeon because that was the only remedy he could think about, who said that, okay, we can try a surgery. That ended up with him having the same pain and a new neuropathic pain that was radiating in a new part of his body. So now he had his old pain plus a new one, and then he came to me. This opens up so many thoughts in my head, and I haven't said so much more than a hint of what I'm feeling. So your immediate reflections on this patient story and if that has any significance in your world of work. I think one of, one of the things it highlights is ownership of the problem. And just because we have a patient who takes opiates that were originally pres prescribed, so it's an iatrogenic issue, essentially does not make them drug addicts. And to treat them as such is disgusting, I believe. We do have an opioid weaning service and it's for patients who want to reduce their opioids, not for GPs or other doctors to send their patients to us to get them off their drugs, but for people who might be interested. We have a chat, we explain the pros and the cons, and then those that want to reduce, we help them to reduce. And those that don't, we say, okay, good luck, because they're adults and it's not illegal. They were prescribed these drugs by someone. There's the gap between their supply and their demand. That gap will be filled with something. Mm. And it may be something as benign as seeing another clinician who will do something that may or may not work. But it may be filled with other drugs. And that includes nicotine and alcohol and marijuana, but also all the other things um, you can get. Or it may just be filled with physical violence, beating up those around them and things like because of problems with mood and all the rest, or or perhaps violence against themselves. But whatever it is, that's a, a demand that we, the medical profession, developed. And now we're saying we're not going to supply enough to fill it. I don't think that that is ever filled by good things. Hmm. I think, to my mind, that's the real crisis with the opioids are naivety. I've also got colleagues in North America to, who have terrible stories about what people happen when they turn up on the Tuesday morning to get their prescription filled and told, sorry, we don't provide that anymore, off you go. Hmm. When we've looked at our data, we've drawn a sort of line and anyone 
taking more morphine find it incredibly difficult to reduce then we're sort of of the opinion that this is going to be really difficult and i think that's because the only people that have managed to get on the doses that high are the ones who are looking for something that doesn't exist that the pain is actually opioid resistant and you still try to give them opioids. yeah, yeah absolutely yeah mm. no absolutely it's also tied up with all sorts of mental health issues and all the rest at that mm. stage just trying to treat their mental health issues with opioids uh, i can tell you another true story uh, and uh for all listeners, uh, please don't try to get a referral for me to prescribe opioids. <laughs> this is not why I'm saying it. But I was actually listening to a lecture that you had many years ago. And it was about your uh, clinic where you uh, helped people to uh, withdraw their opioids. And you presented it with follow-up figures, which is very good. You said something about let the patients uh, take their own time and you should have a, f a free supply. But you didn't mean, you know, that you should just give them everything. But it should be available and not, you know, that they have to beg for it and, and call everyone. Yeah, so the, these people have decided they want to reduce mm. or they're interested. They come to see us, we explain why it might be a good idea. We explain why they might find it difficult. Mm. And then that those that want to, our job is to define the size of the step they take. So that's the, the reduction. And to support them as they make that reduction but they decide whether they do it once a week once a fortnight once a month once every two months mm. because they're not criminals they're not wrong they're not <laughs> <laughs> they're where they are because of us mm. funny thing was that quite recently after that lecture met a patient who had uh, not a very high dose at all but very restricted that she would get a prescription that lasted for two weeks and after two weeks, she would get another one. But they didn't count any extra days. So if you were sick or if the pharmacy was closed, uh, she would be without medication. And therefore, she kind of made a fit with the, the GP that I need more medicine, which they interpret like you're a drug addict. So she came to my pain uh, clinic. And the first thing we did was that I said that I will prescribe more, uh, but I will count. <laughs> I will check every tablet. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that actually made her take less. And yeah. finally, maybe after three months, she was without any opioids, which hadn't happened for like two or three years. Yeah. But you can't really have that discussion in medical society because they think, oh, you're one of those doctors that almost sell pills to the patients. I find that you are kind of the same wavelength here. I guess. All, yeah, I mean, very similar. All these people can fill their lives with alcohol and cigarettes, and many of them could drive at the same time. If I mean, they're allowed to do all sorts of silly things. Well, they're not allowed to do it, but they're capable of doing it. Hmm. Why can't we trust them? We give them the knowledge, we give them the support, and they make their decisions. If, if they can't reduce, if they can't reduce, we say, right, okay, that's fine. Well, then we'll stop our engagement. You've done as well as you can, but you'll go back to your family doctor now. Mm. And there are, of course, other units that can help. Yeah. yeah. And mm. if you want to have another go sometime, come back and see us. I don't know if, if you know that, but I uh, wrote a book uh, together with an ex-patient. It's called Outsmart the Pain. And one of yeah, the... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, one of the chapters uh, that I didn't want to write myself because I didn't think it was needed is about pill shaming. 
And my co-author, Karin Julström, said that you really need to write about this because it's such a shame taking tablets. And we were not talking opioids. We were talking anything. You know what I mean? I take so many pills, some patients say that uh, I feel embarrassed. And actually, that chapter has been one of the most, you know, with positive feedback. That finally, I read that I'm not alone. I, but I absolutely, Carsten, yeah. there's a terrible cost to people every time they interact with the healthcare service, whether it is face to face, whether it's for another clever, whizzy intervention from someone smart, or whether it's just taking the tablet at home. I mean, it, it's there, there is a cost to us, isn't there? Mm. And I think we forget that. Now then, we did mention orthopedic surgeons. And again, back to the book, I I wrote quite uh, a lot about things you see on MRI scans or x-rays, which are not really related to the pain. There was one study about the, I think, 63-year-old woman in in New York who went to 10 different radiology clinics uh, and presented the same pain, of course. And she got like 49 different diagnoses and not one single diagnose was uh, in all 10 clinics. And that was a a scientific study. So it it was not, you know, just some fun. I always tell my patients that they need to be very careful that they might not be able to do surgery on their pain. On the other hand, I know patients that have had like uh, disc hernias and become much better after surgery, even after those few first months. What are your thoughts about pain and orthopedic surgery? You can choose body part. (laughs) I'm just generally talking about orthopedic surgery and pain. Well, um, yeah, (laughs) it's amazing how you pull out the punch just at the end, just when I'm thinking. (laughs) That's my speciality. I I think I've done all right today. (laughs) A bit of mumbling here and there, but I've been pretty close to chatting away. And then you want to ask questions like that. I think there are all sorts of interest, really interesting. It's really interesting. So I think that if you see a surgeon, you shouldn't be surprised if you get an operation. There seems to be a lack of ownership. Uh, maybe that's not quite the right word. But so I know patients will go to see their doctor with their problem and the doctor will say, well, I don't know, maybe you need an operation, go and see the surgeon. And the surgeon will say, well, you need an operation because if you didn't, you wouldn't have been sent to me. And and clearly the family doctors don't really understand the pros and cons and all the rest of the surgery. And the surgeons may do, but some of them just assume that if you've been sent there, you've been sent for an operation, you get an operation. And I know that if someone from the Royal College of Orthopaedic Surgeons or whoever they are these days, hears this, they'll they'll write back to you incandescent with rage and my house will be set fire to you because of course they don't all behave like that. And I'm sure they don't all behave. But I think it seems to me that that is the way the system is going. Actually, the orthopedic surgeon I talked to, who is also a business area manager in the company I work for, Copio, he said two things. And the first thing was that the reimbursement system kind of forces the healthcare, including orthopedics, to use two 
advanced methods when they could fix it really easily. We're incentivized or reimbursed in a way that we would always choose a more complex way to solve a problem. As an orthopedic surgeon, you are promoted if you can master a lot more of the different contraptions that we use. The more advanced the method is to solve a fracture, the faster you're promoted and you get higher pay, higher salary, and the reimbursement from the um, government uh, increases. So we're constantly driven to use a more complex method of solving a simple problem. And the other thing he said that was that we try to find uh, a course for surgery on the MRI. We do the MRI before we even see the patient, so we kind of decided before we see them. And he, he made a parallel when he worked in, in Africa where they didn't have x-ray and he knew what the problem was. And then sometimes they got an x-ray and it didn't look at all as he thought it would look. So there are some very intelligent orthopedics out there, believe it or not. Uh, I will edit out that last so, thing, but... No, yeah. no, it's good. No, leave it in, leave it in. So one of my um, orthopedic colleagues actually done quite a lot of spinal operations in his time. He has this term vomit, which is a victim of medical imaging technology, which is absolutely brilliant, isn't it? Because that's what they are. They've gone along. And understandably, most patients won't understand the difference between an association and a causality and because many of the clinicians don't and so they go along and they assume well i've got this pain here i need a scan and so okay well we'll reassure you there's nothing dreadful going on and so they get their scan and if it's of a low back it'll always say degenerative disc disease and i'm thinking well degeneration is actually a functional thing it's not a disease because it's normal so where does this crazy combination of words come from and then the one i really love uh, uh, that they is then used later on is wear and tear which as you well know in my language they're both destructive terms so wearing away and tearing up whereas i'm not sure there's anything they're just changes compatible with seeing a few christmases so but they're guaranteed to to strike fear into people's hearts and to then I had, I had a patient who was sitting beside a surgeon looking at the x-rays and he said, look, there's a black disc. There's nothing there. And the patient was like, oops. I of course, drew the parallel with, you know, smoking and getting black lungs or even yeah. a dying yeah, yeah. finger because it's black. Yeah, yeah. And I said, yeah. well, it's, it's just a bit drier. It doesn't look black when you take it out. It's on the image that it's right. black. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. if you get it yeah. presented that way, you have a black yeah. disc in your, in your spine. Oh. Fix it, please. Grey hair and wrinkles, that's what it is. I must remind you to send me a picture which I can <laughs> put on uh, <laughs> uh, the, the pod <laughs> advertisement. So you do some opioid withdrawals in your clinic and you do work with the veterans. Apart from that, what is your main field or minefield in your work? What kind of patients do you see? It's the same as, I imagine the same as all other general civilian pain clinics, the normal gamut, much of it is musculoskeletal um, and back pain, but some of it gets a little more um, fine print. 
but that's sort of the bread and butter of it. What do you think about the education that medical students and even specialists get in pain in, in the UK? Well, I think it's getting better, but I'm not sure how much it changes people's behaviour. Clinicians or the patients? Well, either. It wasn't long ago when most British doctors would have less training in pain than a vet. <laughs> I think we, we're, we're doing slightly better than four hours, which is what it used to be. That sort of rather simplistic approach and ignoring the emotional component and there is a cause and we'll cut it out, all that sort of nice, simple, linear stuff does appeal to our slightly staid, needing certainty, faith in numbers kind of mentality. Mm. Mm. I mean, don't forget the type of people we are to get to where we are is a little bit peculiar, isn't it? We have to pass silly exams at early ages and they're, and they're, they're all very factually based and they're never allowed to be anything but completely certain in your answer to the examiner. There's still a lot of eminence-based medicine, I think. So we are experts yeah. when we are finished in the medical school and then we meet a world where nothing is uh, true. It's also dependent on how important the system thinks that pain is. And I'm not sure that it sees it much more than rather a pain. As it were. Pain's a bit of a pain for the managers and, the, you know, you can't count it, you can't fix it, you can't, it's just a cost and they're only a, a bit of a Cinderella specialty so we can get rid of that one when no one's watching. It's a really interesting problem. I think. And that you see pain as a symptom, so it's nothing more than, you know, fix the basic error and then you will get rid of the pain. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I, I hear that you actually call it persistent pain. You don't call it chronic pain? Or? Well, we may do. I do like persistent, but uh, once upon a time we used to have the Intractable Pain Society in Britain. And I think Intractable is even better, but because uh, there's, there's no um, messing around with what, what those words mean. Um, I think the problem with the word chronic is that in most patients' minds, Chronic means it, it's an indication of severity rather than duration. Mm. I think we're just very bad at saying you've got pain and it's unlikely to go. And yeah. so everyone's looking for the answer or waiting for the pain to go, or waiting for it to go forever. And, you know, I'll do this latest jab or burn this new nerve. And, and we are thinking, well, we might help you for a few months. Five, ten, whatever, and you're hearing, oh, it's going to go forever. <laughs> yeah, no. do, do you do do you do interventional th therapies like uh, blocks and things like that? Yes, yes, do a few of those. Mm. Um, and what are your experience with that? Well, I'm excellent at them. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I'm very, very good indeed. I think. Um, Okay. You're so modest. Laughing at me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will edit like, that away so no one will know yeah. that I'm actually laughing you in, in the face. Uh, yeah, no, no. Uh, but it's after the first bit about me being good at anything, I thought it was fair mm, to reply. Mm. No, I think they have a role, but I think they're rarely curative. I think you might provide time for people to get up and get going. As I say to people, for having both interventions but also medication the role isn't to reduce your pain it's there to help you do more to help you be a better you because what 
we seem to realize is that most people can deal with the ouch of pain. It's the effect of the pain on your life. So if you can double what you do, if you can work more, sleep more, play more, for the same amount of pain, then you're in a better place. And then if you're in a better place, the pain is actually less of a problem. So all of this focusing on pain, it's back to the opioid crisis. You know, if you didn't, if people knew that the drugs were there to help you do more, and if they don't help you do more, you shouldn't be taking them. Good. Mm. But but we sell people, oh, painkiller. Oh, that'll be good. That'll kill my pain. I heard him. He said mm. painkiller. It'll kill my pain. And if I take enough, my pain's going to go. Isn't it, doctor? And of course, the doctor doesn't know because he's not, he doesn't know his drugs that well, you know, for whatever reason. And and so everyone's just spinning off in the wrong directions. And, and everyone thinks they're doing the right things, but no one's really having a proper conversation about this. And, mm. and, and I think that's one of the issues with all these interventions. Even the really simple, you know, little jab of a uh, bit of local anaesthetic hint of steroid into quadratus lumborum muscles often gives four to six months benefit. Fantastic. And the, and the patients do incredibly well. It's it, minimal risk, minimal time, minimal cost. Wonderful. And, you know, even if you could only offer it every six or eight months for the time they've got the pain, at least got something to aim towards, knowing that, oh, Okay, I've got my pain now, but I've got something that's coming up that's going to help me, help me be better, and I'll plan my holiday for then, and I'll mm. plan whatever it is. And uh, so there's a bit of hope we're providing. But of course, you know, when they look at the evidence, oh, we can talk about evidence in a minute. That's one of my other favourites. Um, you know, you tell her there's no evidence. You think, well, you speak to all these patients of mine. They say it's phenomenal. But that's because we know and they know what the aim is it's not to cure anyone it's just to help well i was thinking uh, maybe we should talk about evidence <laughs> yeah that's a really interesting one i think within pain um, i could actually uh, throw in another uh torch here Acu acupuncture I yeah. i've talked about that uh previous and and did, previously yeah. And and uh, I mean there are pros and cons and uh, people have said a lot about it and I think I know your point of view because I've listened so, to what you uh, said but what tell me yeah, acupuncture so I, I'm not up to speed on the latest research um, I will say that as I say to my patients many people swear by by it and swear at it but I think that's the same as everything we do. We, we, And, and that's what people forget. And that's because pain isn't just a simple, the simple wiring diagram we were forced to learn at medical school. You know, it's that bit between our ears that really confuses everything. Unfortunately, it's, well, in many ways, it's fortunate that we've all got different bits between our ears. Otherwise, we'd all be a bit dull. But actually, mm. in, in some ways, it'd be quite easy because then if we fix one, we'd fix everyone. I think our entire synthesis of evidence is a really interesting thing at the moment but we know that a lot of the papers that are published are nonsense don't we and that's mm. one of the big things at the moment the fraud that goes on in these scientific papers um just generally and we also know that many of them are nonsense just because they haven't got enough people in them to show a meaningful difference despite how you might cook the statistics 
I need to interject here just to say that uh, trust me people this is not uh, an anti-vaxxer you don't need to uh, stop uh, subscribing to me in Spotify but actually you say the same thing as, as I have said that many things done in research is actually that you try to prove your old point because then you get more funding and that's like a human thing to do. I mean, it's uh, I would do that as well. If I, if I really need money to, to pay all my research students or get another fund, of course I want to show that my research is fruitful. And the other thing I've said is that the day we have an artificial intelligence that will go through all the papers and say this is good enough, I am certain that we will have at a maximum 10% left of all scientific papers written that is actually good enough in a scientific way. Now people will burn my house. But can you see my standpoint or do you think I, that, I oh, completely that was too do. much? No, Carsten, I do see it. And rather sadly for the listeners, I'm going to completely agree with you because I'm, I, there are all sorts of rewards for people who get published. Some of it's just your chum coming up to you in the coffee room saying, nice paper. Haven't read it, but I saw your name on it. But in bigger institutions, it, it's actually where collecting money and kudos and funding and standing in a new Mercedes, I suspect. So that there are lots of angles to it. But you're right. So we know that a lot of what's published is nonsense. And a lot of what would have gone before wouldn't go today. But I, I also think how we synthesize the good and the bad is not entirely clear. We use numbers needed to treat in the the, the pain research. So that's looking at how much better than a placebo your intervention is. And I do see that has a value, but I don't see it has much of a value as a clinician because I'm not allowed to use a placebo in the clinic. So you might as well be comparing it to unicorn tears. No value, but then the commissioners and the people paying and all the rest, oh, the number needed to treat sex, Y, and Z, but it, that's not the relevant bit mm, no. and and you will know as and everyone knows the importance of placebo and, and how peculiar it is that you know i would argue that much of apple the uh, computer company's money comes on the fact that it's wrapped up nicely and it looks pretty but its functionality isn't very different to the other people in the market mm. but some of us like the way it moves and and, and that's kind of the same thing. And so, for example, I might be wrong, and I'm sure your listeners will write in if I say so, but if I am wrong, but Botox for migraine, so Botox injections for migraine, do those, do those a lot, phenomenally impressive responses. Just about everyone does really, really well. Not quite everyone, but just about, and, and game changers. They just say it changes my life, you know, for a, five-minute procedure. But when you look at the data, it, there's an NNT of eight. So sort of seven of the eight would do just as well with salty water. But I'm not allowed to use the salty water because it's placebo. But even if I did, maybe if I said to people beforehand, oh, would you, would you be willing to have salty water? It probably works just as well as the Botox. Now, most will say, no, oh, thanks. I'll have the Botox, please. <laughs> Exactly. I'd like to be, receive a biological weapon, if that's all right with you, Doctor. <laughs> so I, I, I just find it all fascinating. I don't think our conversations at that level where we're trying to bring it back, you, we're very bad at 
as I say, from the bench to the bedside, so from the scientific bench where we think about the, the pointy heady scientist bit, but how do you actually relate that to the patient sitting across you in the clinic when mm. it has your decisions have to pass through all these filters of people that don't really understand the problem as well as we probably do, nor the options, but they've just been told what the answer is by someone. Anyway, yeah, mustn't rant. No, <laughs> and he, yeah, exactly. Just ranting. No, uh, actually, I, I think we had an excellent talk here. Uh, it, it opens up a lot of questions, and of course, both you and I, I think, have been a little bit provocative. But but it's actually to you know start some thoughts, <laughs> and and uh, we do it with a twinkle in the eye uh, towards uh, the orthopedic surgeons and all the researchers. You are all needed out there. You know that. <laughs> of course, there are some questions that I haven't asked yet that I really wanted to ask. Uh, and the most urgent one was actually what you think about Brexit now a few years later. But uh, apart from that, do you think there's anything that, that we haven't touched upon that you really said that, ah, oh, why didn't he ask me about this? Or uh, did I misunderstand anything that you said? I'll have to wait till wait till it comes out and I listen to it or my colleagues tell me what an idiot I was I think it's been a lot of fun I think you were just talking about the the bit about thought and I know there was an English polymath called Bertrand Russell mm -hmm. and he said that most people would rather die than think and many of them do <laughs> yeah <laughs> And, and it's it's quite interesting, isn't it? Was it Benjamin Franklin who came up with that line about early to bed, early to rise, makes man healthy, wealthy and wise. And um, we all want to be healthier and wealthier, but everyone seems to think they've got the wisdom of Einstein already. So, <laughs> if you look at the twist of spheres, so I, 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 all these little juxtapositions. And of mm. course, they're just frames of mind, aren't they? Health and wealth, mm. just how you feel about life, nothing else. So actually a lot of, of pain and pain treatment and the pain experience is not about pills, not about treatment. It's about what happens between your ears. And maybe we can help people with that. I think, I think that's really important and empowering the patient to take ownership of it and make their decisions and understand what the options are, what the risks are, what the outcome, likely outcomes are. Um, for example, if, if you're going for a knee replacement, Often you're not being told it's going to take you six months to get over it afterwards. Mm. And who's going to look after your husband in that mm. time, for example. Mm. So, so yes, it's ownership and it's gripping it. And it is a dark, ghastly, grim old condition. But if we can provide people with um, the waypoints, you know, a little GPS waypoint to aim towards something to go towards, then I think that makes a huge huge difference in people's lives i don't know if you've ever been lost on a mountain but they're pretty miserable places to be lost in when it's raining and it's dark and you don't know which way you're going but if you know which way you're going then at least you've got something to trudge towards hmm. and that sort of gives a bit of purpose yeah well this has been a tremendous talk really uh, i'm i'm happy you stayed with me all the time and didn't get tired of all my crazy questions we didn't rehearse or anything you had no idea what i would ask you about none uh, at all <laughs> <laughs> so do you feel confident that your house will not be uh, in any flames in the future you are happy with your answers i think well we'll give it we'll see what happens 
<laughs> Carson, it's been lovely talking to you. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>